Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News Jeff Sample on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. Welcome to 2019. We're saying goodbye to the old year and the holidays, and hello to New Year's resolutions. Every year, we make promises to improve our lives and our health, but for most of us, it usually doesn't end up well. This week, we're going to take a look at why it's so hard to keep a resolution. We'll learn that it might be less about improvement and more like giving up an addiction. We'll also find out how we tend to lie to ourselves to make us feel better and how that can end up ruining any gains we make. And in our SAS class, we get introduced to one of the strongest obstacles to weight loss, your grocery store. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro and I'm going to start the year off right by showing you how resolutions or should I say rehabilitation can go wrong so you can learn how to make them all right. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Have you made your New Year's resolutions yet? Do they fit into one of these categories? Losing weight. Getting more exercise. Spending less. Learning a new skill or language. These are some of the more common choices and for good reason. They're all about improving ourselves. We tend to take a look back at the previous year and ask a few questions. What was a highlight of the year and why? What challenges did I face in my life? Who or what made me the most grateful? And what was the biggest lesson I learned? We then put these answers into perspective, leading to the inevitable question, who do I want to be by the end of the coming year? These questions are a part of clinical psychology, which looks for reasons for why we tend to act a certain way. It's been around for centuries, although over the years the approach has changed. In ancient Greece, it was all about the humors. And that's not about comedy, but biological fluids like blood, phlegm, yellow and black bile. Now, each color led to a type of temperament, and as such, certain behaviors could be expected. A few centuries ago, physicians focused on the soul, the psyche, instincts, and the mind. In the 1900s, it became all about instinctual versus learned behavior. 
Today, we're really big on situational determinants with terms such as affects and emotions being the evaluative mediators that lead to certain motivations and actions. No matter what the strategy might be to figure out why we make resolutions, the answer to these questions becomes clear. We want better control over our lives and ultimately, ourselves. This may sound pretty basic, and on the surface it is, but when you start looking at how we can achieve self-control, well, it gets complicated. Really, really complicated. Back in 1972, a paper by Dr. Frederick H. Kanfer, who was one of the pioneers of the behavior modification movement, put it almost too eloquently. Self-control is like a behavioristic excursion into the lion's den. If you need an example as to why we have trouble grasping and holding on to control, just look back to a few weeks ago when we were in the midst of the holiday season. If there's anything people like to do during that time, it's consume. And in the process, lose control. Let's take food, for example. We see eating during the holiday season as a way of giving ourselves rewards. We go against the usual rule of healthy eating and head straight into the realm of what is known as holiday eating. Needless to say, when this happens, the amount of calories we ingest goes up. Think of all the snacks and other diet cheats we allow ourselves during that time. And that's not the worst of it. Those holiday dinners can have the highest portions of negative nutrients like sodium, saturated fats, and calories. Put it all together, and you end up with a lot of celebratory weight. And then comes January 2nd. I've been there. It isn't pretty. We may even hate ourselves for everything we've done. And then we decide we need to make a change. We need more self-control. We need to get better. We need to get our old selves back. And indeed, we need to make a New Year's resolution. Yes! And so we begin the year all filled with fight and fervor. But how long does that motivation last? A few weeks? A few days? A few hours? How does this happen? It turns out the reason may be easy to understand but incredibly difficult to accept. The opposite of control is impulsiveness, and if this goes on long enough, turns to addiction. And it's not a stretch to suggest the holidays are addictive. And what does that make our resolutions? Rehabilitation. Now, researchers tried to find ways to prevent this holiday addiction from happening. They can show that health interventions work before and during the holidays. The problem is, few people are willing to listen. After all, it's a time to celebrate, not restrict. As for interventions that come after the new year, well, they may not be as effective because trying to reform addiction is always tougher than preventing it. So, as we sit with our resolutions in hand, what do we do? I've reached out to Dr. Lala Tendu Acharya to help us navigate through the troubles of holiday excess and New Year's resolution letdown. He's an assistant professor in consumer science at Purdue University and has a rather unique perspective on how we approach health policy. 
His work has spanned the health spectrum over the years and he has worked on numerous issues dealing from weight to children to socioeconomic divides and even HIV spread in Africa. <laughs> That's a great question, you know. The common thing is people, consumers. So uh, the thing I look at is how can we influence behavior and the challenges therein. And that's a commonality that is uh, in researching with policy, with HIV prevention, with interventions, and also the issues that consumer scientists work on. We use the same social psychological theories and uh, many research, similar research methodologies. And ultimately, it's the consumers. You know, people consume health, people consume commodities, people consume products. So how can we work with their behavior? How can we influence their behavior to the desired level that we want to? So I think uh, in that sense, I draw from my experience and uh, my, my knowledge from different fields into how do we work on behavior of people. So when it comes to the holiday season, I've suggested that, you know, eating too much and maybe other vices like drinking, spending money and avoiding the gym, this is all akin to giving yourself a gift. Now, from a consumer science perspective, is this really a natural way of looking at it? Or, you know, are we being helped along by marketers? You know, the easiest answer to this question is both. <laughs> but then, if you really look at <clears throat> the holiday season, the different ways in which, uh, I mean, let's not call them vices, uh, but rather a different kind of behaviors that people engage in, you know, drinking, spending money, I mean... I would rather, you know, if I talk with my wife about spending money being a vice, I'll get thrown out of the house. So uh, going to the gym or avoiding, in many ways, there is a lot of research out there which says that um, uh, we do many of these things uh, as rewards, you know, as rewards and that kind of um, stimulates uh, centers in our brain. And then we keep on repeating that habit. It becomes reinforcement. Um, uh, Again, uh, marketeers. Marketers rely on specifically this kind of neural pathways. You know, they do their attractive advertisements. Uh, they entice consumers with different promotional techniques, with different um, um, different uh, different other uh, marketing techniques and sell techniques, where people can purchase and buy. Now, uh, this is both. Uh, I mean, the science on it is both, you know, it's a natural tendency for human behavior and also marketeers kind of work on this behavior and uh, help create an environment where these behaviors can be expressed. They encourage this kind of a behavior. So if you look at the science and the study of human behavior, it doesn't happen in isolation, but rather we are genetically predisposed. You know, our brains are wired in some ways to do certain kind of things. But at the same time, there is a lot of environmental and exosomal influence on it. So when you look at it, our behavior is construed um, with a lot of external factors. And uh, who knows it better than marketeers and people who try to reach uh, to every segment of people with their product. So in a way, really, the holidays can be considered addictive, right? Ah, that was a very interesting question. I'm not sure um, if I would call that addictive in that sense. Um, can you explain the question a bit more? Because to this question, my answer would be no. But can you explain it a bit more? Sure. Uh, let's just say I go ahead and have fun during the holidays. You know, I eat too okay. much or maybe stop exercising or spend a little too much on my credit card. And and now it's January and I'm looking at my credit card statement. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. And all I'm thinking is, what happened? I mean, I've got to get back into physical and financial shape. And, and 
I need to make resolutions. But if the holidays are addictive, wouldn't it be more akin to, say, being rehabilitation instead of a resolution? Holidays per se. I would love it to be addictive because, you know, we need more holidays. We were working too much. (laughs) But then I would say the question is, are the behaviors that people engage in, are the things that they do uh, during holidays, are they addictive? Well, in some senses, um, like I said, you know, behavior doesn't uh, depend, uh, doesn't get performed in isolation. It depends on the context. So a difference, let's take this example. A healthy individual eating more or not doing exercise uh, versus an already obese individual eating more, not doing exercise, all during the holidays. So for whom can it be considered addictive or more detrimental uh, or more, uh, you know, uh, more detrimental to the person's health? You know, that's one, one way. And the other way to look at it is uh, there are certain behaviors like spending money, spending money on credit cards. These are addictive behaviors, and uh, these stay on. A holiday provides an opportunity in which companies manufacture these so-called deals and you know, better giveaways, and so people keep on spending more. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the National Retail Foundation is estimating a, almost a 4% increase in the spending this year, up to $1,007 for every respondent that they did, they surveyed around 1.4 billion consumers. You know, these are things um, that make it a bit addictive. But if you look at food and food addictions, you know, whether people eat more and does become addictive, well, uh, food addiction is yet not classified by DSM-5 as an addictive behavior, but uh, they have have developed different scales by which they discuss about food uh, addiction. For example, the Yale food addiction scale is very popular, and they talk about, uh, and they're built on food food consumption and substance abuse behavior, and they call it food addiction. But then it's also self-reporting behavior out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. There. Um, I would go easy there uh, when I talk about these are very addictive behavior. But the other angle of it is, once we spend all these things in a holiday, once we do engage in this kind of a behavior in holidays, some of this behavior sticks in the new year. And because this behavior sticks, because the weight that, has, uh, the weight that I've gained during the holidays due to all these detrimental behaviors uh, sticks, that's why it leads to more uh, worse outcome, you know, when it adds up. Uh, for example, if you look at weight, I'm sure, it'll, you know, I was surprised when I get, oh, got into this research that people get an average of up to two pounds in the holidays and much of which sticks to you. It doesn't get off. And no wonder we are having an increase in obesity over wow. a period of time. Well, if that's really the case then, I mean, um, do you think that health interventions might be able to, to get us to, to come back, you know, I, I, again, like a rehabilitation or, or maybe uh, yes. having yes. someone there like a, like, I would almost consider it like an Alcoholics Anonymous in which the community isn't getting involved so that it's not just, you know, health experts, but it's kind of everybody around you all working to help you get back to a better sense of balance. Uh, yes, yes, and yes, Jason, absolutely. Health interventions can help in the pre 
operation period like you have noted in one of the sheets that you had sent me and health op- health interventions can also operate in the post period you know the fact the fact of the matter is like let's say i wake up on the new year's day and say that hey man what did i do you know i need to get back in shape i need to do all these things that could be a first step from an individual point of view but again it depends on how much of you know determination the person has got you know we talk about the construct of self efficacy if the person self efficacy is high if the person thinks he can make a change does he have an internal locus of control or does he think that well you know the world is doing this to me i can't do anything about it a lot of these factors come into play at that point of time but yes a well designed health intervention can really help okay so we have everything in context we now know that you know health interventions can be useful we know that the community can be useful to help you get to that point mm-hmm. so i have a final question for you and it's a bit of a challenge <laughs> do you overindulge during the holidays and if so how long does it take you to get back to normal what do you think jason do i overindulge or not i uh, i come on we all overindulge i kind of figured that would be a yes but i really want to know <laughs> and i'm sure the listeners want to know how long does it take you to get back on track cuz i've heard on average like 6 weeks or something but i have a feeling you might be able to do it faster so for me personally uh, like you said it would take me if i am really serious enough and the conditions are suitable enough probably 4 to 5 weeks or maybe 6 to shed uh, the amount of weight have gained and come back to a normal situation um but then it doesn't always happen and uh, like i said you know a, a, a behavior that you you know overindulge overindulging in something is a behavior that is kind of rewarding and it sticks to you so essentially for the people who are listening if it's taking you a little bit longer to get to that resolution don't don't worry cuz even the experts take some time oh absolutely so be resilient be at it <laughs> There's no doubt resolutions are personal, but when it comes to realizing them as Dr. Acharya points out, it's really a team effort. We need to have other people involved, even if only remotely, to help us achieve those goals. Now, at first, we might think of family and friends as the biggest influencers, but when it comes to adopting a new routine, sometimes we turn away from the people we trust the most and instead focus on celebrities think about it if you had to choose a diet who would you be more likely to listen to your mom your friends or oprah now oprah has been one of the biggest influencers in modern day history she has dictated everything from what books to read to what clothes to wear to what health trends are best for us For a company, nothing beats having Oprah proclaim your product as the next best thing. And it goes beyond Oprah. Celebrities have been pitching products to us for years. Now, this might work for say coffee, George Clooney, water, Jennifer Aniston, or Lincolns, pitched to us by the Lincoln lawyer himself, Matthew McConaughey. You may see these people in an ad and say to yourself, I got to have that in my life. We look for whatever trending celebrities push so we can get the Instagram likes, even if it's not the best option scientifically. We're choosing social media over personal health. That's not always a good thing. Here's where it gets interesting. 
if someone was to ask you how you're going to achieve those resolutions, you may end up lying about those actions that you're going to take just to get social standing. Instead of admitting you're picking up the latest fad detox or weight loss pill, you might feel that a healthy and balanced diet with exercise is the best answer and say you're going to run with it, even though that's not actually what you're doing. Scientifically, the idea of misrepresenting values to others to make us look good in a social context, regardless of our actions, known as social desirability bias. Although, my next guest may have a better name for it. She calls it the Hermione Effect. Her name is Courtney Beer, and she is a doctoral student at Purdue University. She has studied the impact of SDB on a variety of different social topics, ranging from pet adoption to how we see ourselves acting during the holidays. So, Courtney, how is it that a scientific concept such as SDB have anything to do with our favorite Harry Potter character, Miss Hermione Granger, with apologies to Ron, of course. Ron never gets the credit he deserves. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, but, but everyone loves Hermione. And when we think about her, we always imagine the student that's eagerly raising their hands and they give the right answer. So social desirability bias happens when another person asks you a question and the answer you give is what you think they or society wants to hear. So if Ron and Harry ask Hermione if she's going to study all night, her answer may be a little different than, say, if Snape or Professor McGonagall were to ask the same question. And that's SDB. This sounds interesting, but it also, I don't know, appears to be obvious. Don't people misrepresent their intentions all the time? I mean, I've done it. I've lied on quizzes so I could be in Gryffindor and not Hufflepuff. I mean, who wants to be in Hufflepuff anyways? It just seems like human nature. Or am I missing something? So it is human nature. Um, it's a little bit different than trying to lie on a quiz. You know, I'm always afraid to end up in Slytherin. <laughs> um, but this, this really happens when there's another person there. Um, it also happens in surveys, even if we do online surveys with a computer. The fact that you know some other human will be reading your answers uh, might make you behave in a way that's affected by social desirability bias. Uh, you don't intentionally plan to mislead anyone. It happens subconsciously. So we're very social animals, and we've evolved to want to belong to tribes or groups as kind of a survival mechanism. So today that happens when you want to behave in a tribe of, you know, Oprah followers. And it can happen in a lot of different situations. So we actually did a study asking people about how they adopted or acquired their dogs. And people said that they didn't care about how their dog looked, but the average American did. So they don't mind that their dog has, you know, three legs, but everyone else wants that perfect golden retriever. It's not exactly believable. Let's get into the idea of social motivation leading to SDB. I mean, you just mentioned Oprah, and there are other celebrities who have huge influence on us. They, they can make us do, quite honestly, some silly things. But can we use that same approach then to get people to act better and, and maybe stick with something like a New Year's resolution that's going to work and maybe make you healthier? 
Can we harness SDB to improve the likelihood that people are going to adopt a healthy behavior? Sure. So the problem with social desirability bias is that it has little to do with your actual behavior. You're just saying what you think will score you some more social points. So we often study SDB by asking people the same set of questions, uh, once about themselves and then a second time about the average American. So people don't feel that same urge to kind of misinterpret or missay what they're doing uh, when they're talking about this kind of average American that could be anyone. Uh, so our research group has done this once in 2012, um, which is already published, and then again this year, and we specifically asked about holiday eating, alcohol consumption, and New Year's resolutions. And we asked people to rate the likelihood that they would gain weight during the holidays, and 62% of them gave themselves a better score than the average American. So I'm not going to gain weight, but everyone else is. And that's where social desirability bias comes in. It sounds like SDB really can get in the way of being able to help you to achieve a, a resolution. How, how do you think that we might be able to prevent something like that? I mean, do we need health promotion strategies or other interventions that rely on, you know, focusing on our intention and action rather than what we feel may be right based on our situation? Can we make people immune to SDB or really is the only way to live alone on an island so we don't feel the need to impress anyone except maybe for a volleyball named Wilson? Right. I, I'm not sure if you'd feel the need to impress Wilson. Oh, come on. Uh, have you, not, have you not seen the movie Castaway? He's impressing Wilson all the time. He does swim after him. Uh, you will have so many comments from psychologists in the comment section saying whether or not Wilson counts as a person. Uh, but we researchers, we work really hard um, when we develop surveys to try and minimize all of these biases. Mm -hmm. So social desirability bias is just one problem. Um, you also have you know, non-response bias and hypothetical bias. And so we have to be aware of what people are doing and what behaviors they may exhibit when we make recommendations to policymakers or producers that are trying to, you know, help people make better decisions or at least meet the needs that people have. Um, one thing I think people can do is to really step back and think about why they're saying what they're saying. So if someone asks you, are you going to work out um, over the holidays? Do you say yes because you want to impress them or are you really going to do it? And I think trying to change that conversation around the water cooler from being this like really social desirability um, fueled discussion of things that may or may not happen to people talking about their actual behaviors can, can help change the conversation. Do you think maybe social media could actually help in that case? Instagram posts, uh, Facebook posts, that's all about action as opposed to what we believe. Uh, could we possibly take advantage of what we now have in social media to be able to reinforce what people are going to say on surveys because the evidence is right there? Right. So I'm sure there's a lot of people wondering, you know, why don't you just observe actual behavior and skip asking a question entirely? And the problem is with at least Agicon and a lot of other fields, we're asking people about behavior that's happening in the future as well as their preferences for products that may not exist in the marketplace. 
So if I'm asking someone about, you know, an animal welfare improving um, attribute that doesn't exist, it's completely hypothetical. So SDB can still creep in and there's no actual behavior to observe to kind of counteract that. So it's, it's a very tricky problem to try and, and diagnose. Surveys are used to develop policy. I've been involved in, you know, making policy happen. We always rely on the best evidence that we have. So when we start looking at how we're developing policy for, say, healthy behavior, you know, how to stick with a New Year's resolution in, instead of, you know, the clickbait that we see on the Internet, it's still going to be a tricky thing because it is the future and we're really relying on what people are saying. So in this case, the social media component really doesn't fit in, does it? No, not really. And the one good thing is that social desirability bias only happens when there's a socially correct answer. So if I were to ask people, you know, what's your favorite color? Uh, I don't know anyone who thinks that people who like blue are bad people or not as good as people who like red. So you're not going to have social desirability bias in a question like that. It only happens if you think some answer will get you more social points. So the way you word questions can potentially help this situation. So you're a social person, right? Yes. All right. You're out in society. You like what people think about you, right? Yes, unfortunately, but yes. Um, Does that mean that you actually suffer from SDB? I mean, have you ever caught yourself saying something that you maybe don't intend? Of course I do. I mean, it it happens subconsciously. You know, we all are social to some degree. Uh, I think I do a little better than most people. (laughs) Um, just because I'm aware that it exists, and that's the first step. I I definitely ruined my family for researchers everywhere (laughs) because they've they've read my papers, they've taken my surveys, we've talked about, you know, these kind of psychological things that happen when people answer questions. So I found that when I use them as pre-testers, they're a lot more honest than other people. So I do think even non-researchers can work towards giving honest answers, um, both in survey and just in general day-to-day life. So next time you're talking about the holiday cookie party and you claim that you're not going to eat any, come on, we're all going to sneak at least one. (laughs) Yes, at least one. Maybe that was SDB right there. (laughs) (laughs) So if you had any tips for people out there who really do want to make New Year's resolutions work um, and are being sort of surrounded by all these social norms and, and the social media, is, is the answer really to just look at yourself in the mirror and, and stick to what you feel is right as opposed to what everyone else tells you? I, I do think that's a good idea. You know, you have to be aware that the people around you, what they're saying may not actually be what they're doing. So SDB can creep in. You ask them if they're working out. They shoot back the answer yes. So when you're giving answers to questions or you're talking about what your holiday habits are going to be, you know, you should really step back, think about what you're going to say, and really look before you leap into that answer. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to learn about one of the most common New Year's resolutions, weight loss. Now, I'm sure either you or someone you know has probably made this resolution, me included. However, how many among us can say that it actually worked? I would suggest very few. 
including me. Now, willpower is one aspect. However, you may end up being against an incredible force that could destroy all of your good intentions. It's known as the grocery store. Our guest teacher today is Dr. Lizzie Pope. She's the director of the didactic program in dietetics at the University of Vermont. A few years ago, she published a paper about what we buy at our local store and how that changes from the holidays to the new year. Now, as you might expect, the purchase of unhealthy items grew during the holiday season. No surprise there. Also, more healthy items are purchased after the new year. Again, to be expected. But here's where it gets, well, not so awesome. After the new year, when we have made all of those resolutions, the unhealthy purchases remained at the same level as they were during the holidays. Now, Dr. Pope, I normally start with hello, but I just have to ask, what is going on? Yeah, it's a good question, Jason. We were surprised too. We think that perhaps people get stuck in kind of a rut where they get used to buying the products that they are buying during the holidays, and then it's really hard to give those up. So they keep buying them. Essentially, we we sort of having a debate here throughout the show that you know the holidays could be considered addictive, and that it's almost like a rehabilitation that you need afterwards. And and this seems to kind of fall along those lines. Yeah, perhaps. I I think that there's almost a sense of sadness when the holidays are over, especially, you know, I live in Vermont, which is in a northern climate, and you're in Canada, so I assume it's similar. I was going to say, I'm in Edmonton. I mean, come on, you you have it lucky in Vermont. It's dark, (laughs) it's cold. We were kind of getting through once we had the holidays to look forward to, but I think after that, people are kind of, you know, looking for the next thing, and if food brings comfort, it's hard to give those foods up. Let me just uh, go into the study there. How did you convince anyone to take part in it? It it just seems like such uh, one of those studies where someone asks you a question and you're like, "Mm, maybe not. Well, this this study that you're looking at was part of a larger study and participants of grocery purchasing and participants in the study were compensated to be part of it. So they got a small payment for being every week for being part of the study. I see. So really, there's a little bit of a reward there in order to be part of a study. Um, And and how exactly did you manage to collect the data for this? Uh, We were collecting purchasing records from a grocery store chain in uh, basically upstate New York. And and when you were collecting this data, I mean, you didn't see anything before uh, you sort of went and started to analyze it. You weren't like, seeing any kind of trends. And then when you saw the trends, what was your reaction to that? We were surprised. But then again, you know, it kind of goes towards what you may think if you're being realistic about how people eat and react. And if you know anything about New Year's resolutions and that they don't really last. When you start talking about this, you know, I would I would love to just blame the grocery store. I mean, it's not me, it's the grocery store. They're trying to get yeah. rid of all the bad food before the Valentine's Day rush, that type of right. thing. But perhaps maybe it's not so much the grocery store as sort of a combination of our own addiction, if you will, and the fact that they're still offering those goods. Yeah, well, there's no question that the grocery store is arranged in a particular way to highlight certain foods that they want to sell. And 
companies pay money to put certain foods on certain spots in the grocery store shelves. So there's no question that they are arranged with a certain purpose, but uh, it's probably not all their fault either. And in, you mentioned the Valentine's Day rush, but actually one of the biggest weeks of purchasing for an entire study was the Super Bowl week. And it kind of increased incrementally each week of the football playoffs leading up to the Super Bowl week. And that, as well as what you mentioned with Valentine's Day, kind of enforced to us that the holidays are never really over. <laughs> I mean, we have a defined holiday season here between our Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. But then there's always another thing. Especially, I, I'm assuming it's similar all over the world, but we have the Super Bowl and then Valentine's Day and then Easter and then Memorial Day and Fourth of July. There's always another thing oh. that you can eat for. <laughs> so, <laughs> so really, there isn't sort of that New Year's Day um, switch, if you will. It really yeah. is something that just kind of goes on and on and on. So yeah. if that really is the case, how can we possibly prevent ourselves from heading down that you know, unhealthy and, and yeah. potentially expensive road. Right. I, I think, well, we also think that at some point people kind of click back in and must reduce purchasing or else every year we just purchase more, 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 which I mean, it's possible. And that might be why, you know, small weight gains every year, people do experience that. But I think that one thing that really sets people up for failure is setting these like big ambitious New Year's resolutions that then just feel defeatist when you can't meet them. And so setting small realistic goals and, you know, focusing really on health behaviors rather than am I losing weight? is often more successful for people. So have I gotten 30 minutes of exercise today? Am I eating foods that make me feel good and paying attention to your hunger satiety signals and how you feel after you eat certain foods is, I think, more productive than being like, I'm never going to eat chocolate cake again or I'm going to lose 100 pounds in 10 weeks. Those are unrealistic goals. Kind of like saying that the New England Patriots are always going to win the Super Bowl, right? Oh, I wish they would stop winning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, la I got one I'm last a question. Fan. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, okay, one final question. Uh, we'll, we'll stay away from football for this one. Yes. I, I, as a, as a dietitian, um, do you see that you know this this resolution rush? It's sort of like being a rehab. And, and if so, can I turn to you as a dietitian, or or perhaps any you know registered dietitian as as being a sponsor, perhaps? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think for sure if you have an eating-related goal for the new year, I mean, what's nice about the new year is it's like a fresh start. And so it does motivate people to do something different and kind of get out of patterns that you may be stuck in. But I think it is always good to have support, no doubt. So whether that's a registered dietitian who are the nutrition experts, so definitely would recommend, or um, a supportive friend or family member, a workout buddy, all of, any type of support you can have or sponsor that you can have is going to be helpful for sure, Jason. Well, that's it for this first SASCast of 2019. Here's hoping it's given you that blast to achieve those resolutions. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, 
Don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to get more people to find the podcast. Have a great week. Have a great year ahead. And always remember to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.